With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to Earth 911's Sustainability in Your Ear, the podcast conversation with a change maker working to accelerate the transition to a sustainable carbon neutral society. I'm your host, Mitch Ratcliffe. How we think and feel about the climate response, whether that's optimistic, pessimistic, cynical, or pragmatic, shapes our perceptions of possible solutions. And too often, we argue over perceptions and not hard climate data. But hard data is sterile. It doesn't necessarily engage the passions that move us to act. So we tell stories, and we often focus on what can go wrong. If it bleeds, it leads, is the old journalistic saw. And our guest today, Justin Bean is author of a new book, What Could Go Right? Justin is a longtime Silicon Valley executive and advisor to sustainability startups who currently works as sustainability strategy and solution lead at Hitachi's Environmental Business Group. He wrote What Could Go Right as an antidote to the doom and gloom reporting, as he describes it, that he says dominates our climate coverage. Instead, he argues that social and technological progress to date has prepared society for a rapid transition to low-carbon living. He says we can move from today's complicated polycrisis, when so many different human systems are failing, to what he describes as an omni-thriving world in which new jobs and business opportunities can deliver a just and prosperous future. There's a lot to discuss here. What Can Go Right is available online at Amazon and at powellbooks.com. You can find it in local bookstores as well. And you can learn more about Justin at justincbean.com. That's all one word, Justin C. Bean. No space, no dash, justincbean.com. Welcome to the show, Justin. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me on, Mitch. Well, thank you for joining us. And, and your book, uh, it, was, it was a fun read. I, 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 I share your optimism and your pragmatism. But what I wanted to start with is this question. We're clearly at a turning point. Why is the world facing so many challenges, a sort of polycrisis of collapsing or at least apparently collapsing systems? Yeah, I think it's the answer is as complex as, as the problem, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we're not only seeing one crisis coming at us at a time. Uh, you know, we've got climate change, we've got changes in social orders and, and social perceptions and the way that we have our social contracts in place. Um, we also have changes in technology and that that makes changes in e economies, uh, which leads to changes in geopolitics. And so within all of those changes come conflict. <clears throat> and so we often observe those conflicts as crises. Uh, and some of them are true crises. I think climate change is definitely one that stands out as one that is a um, a big crisis for the human race, um, possibly existential. Um, I think the human race will survive one way or the other. It's just will our civilization survive and will our societies survive uh, if 
most of our cities, especially the ones near water, become flooded. So there's, you know, there's big crises that are all kind of compounding and mixing in with each other. And so that increases complexity pretty rapidly. And that's why it becomes a, a more difficult problem to solve. Well, you you wrote the book, as, as you described, <laughs> as, as an antidote to the gloom and doom reporting. And right. the gloom and doom reporting extends a Western tradition, which is to see everything as a decline from some sort of perfection that we started at. Right. But what you're describing is growth, not just crisis. We're evolving. And, and there's a book that I really found enlightening was Hans Rosling's Factfulness, 10 Reasons We're Wrong About the World and Why Things Are Better Than You Think. And, mm -hmm. and unfortunately, uh, Mr. Rosling passed away a few years ago. Your book is sort of an extension of what he's doing. What is, why? I guess, what's the benefit of taking a positive perspective on this when so many crises are converging? Yeah. Yeah. And the way I like to say it is, you know, I'm I'm optimistic about some things and I'm pessimistic about others, but mm -hmm. really that doesn't matter, right? What matters is doing something about it. And so when you focus on envisioning what could go right and envisioning that world that you're trying to get to or the ideal that you're trying to create, it gives you something to build towards. And then you can, you know, backcast from that perfection or from that ideal and then start planning and putting out steps and giving yourself tasks and collaborating together and, and building companies and startups and anything else that you can do to actually get there. So I think the the word optimist, I think, is a little misplaced in some of okay. these cases, right? So people look at, you know, people like me and you and they say, oh, you're just an optimist, right? There's this whole sense of this is a naive Pollyanna optimism that mm -hmm. doesn't look at the pragmatic approach or, or, you know, is not aware of or concerned about the challenges that we face. Um, and I think that's misplaced. I think it's really about transcending that whole paradigm or that whole um, spectrum and saying, great, there's a problem. We know it. Let's do something about it. And the way you do something about it is you, sure, understand the problem, but then if all you focus on is the problem, you don't really have a place to go. Right. And so it's more important, I think, or it's an important um, area where there's a gap and where I think we're lacking in a lot of the public conversation to envision what that ideal is and envision where we really want to go and agree in some places on, on what that looks like. And then we can really get excited about it and go out and build it because when you're actually building towards something that you want, you're much more energized, your mind is much more creative and focused, and you've got all of your creativity at hand, and people are excited to collaborate together, and it's fun. And when human beings are, beings are productive and having a good time and collaborating, they, we can create some amazing things. And so I think that's why it's so important to focus on that what we might call an optimistic ideal. And it doesn't mean we're ever going to create the utopia. It doesn't mean we create the perfection. But what the society we live in today and the world we live in today would be considered utopian by the standards of people just a few generations ago. I, I when I, I look back at just how much things have changed since the 60s when I grew up, uh, it, it's astonishing. But, but, but you know, the thing is, people love to focus on the negative. Uh, it, mm -hmm. If it leads, it bleeds, it leads is, is the news way. Of it. <laughs> right. And and there's a lot of bloody stuff going on. So, you know, about 40 years ago, computer scientist Alan Kay said the only way to predict the future is to invent it. Mm -hmm. What do you think the big targets for innovation are in order for us to move through the climate crisis and, and, and to address all the other things that are going on? 
Yeah, I, I think there are some trends that are coming out that are going to help us focus on what those solutions are. Um, and one is just the incredible investment in climate tech and in climate change solutions. And those could be nature-based solutions too. I'm not just saying it has to be silicon-based. Um, and so the the number of dollars or yen or any other kind of currency being thrown at that is is enormous. So when we look at climate tech, there's a huge growth. I, I think it was... Um, you know, 260 billion have been raised for climate tech since 2018. And 50 billion of that was last year. Yeah. <clears throat> right. And so it's it's growing really rapidly. Um, and there's much more awareness and there's diversification within that. So um just a couple of years ago, 90% of it was in three verticals: mm-hmm. uh, energy, transportation, and food. Um, and and now 30% of the total instead of 10% is uh, industry, carbon management, um, climate, and built environment startups. So we're not only seeing more money coming into the space, we're seeing more diversification. Um, So I think one, there's more money coming at it, which means there's more resources for solutions. Uh, And then two, I think the democratization trend is really empowering people in many different ways. And so we're going from this sort of, you know, controlled hierarchical, do what you're told, you know, schooling based on this industrial model of you're a factory worker, come and do your job safely. And that means, uh, and efficiently, and that means, you know, do these rote, repeated tasks efficiently to a world of everybody's a little bit of an entrepreneur. And I think that's more natural for human beings anyway, where if you look at developing countries, everyone's got a business, right? Everyone's, you know, working at the market or they're providing a service <clears throat> and we're naturally a very industrious species. Um, and so the democratization through digital tools uh, and automation, I think is putting power back in the hands of everyday people to be able to build their own businesses much more easily, to be able to access capital much more easily, to collaborate with each other much more easily and to actually build tools and build physical things, not just digital things, more easily. So there's there's more solutions in the hands of people and tools in the hands of people to create those solutions for the future. Um, and we don't have to really ask permission as much anymore. And I think that trend is going to explode. And I'll, and I'll just say on top of that, not only is there more capital available for us to, to do that, there's more opportunity for us to invest in those businesses. So with the passage of the Jobs Act mm-hmm. and with the opening of equity crowdfunding, you know, the the everyday investor is has been opened up to the world of venture capital and private uh, equity in some cases and all of these areas that um, carry a higher risk for sure. And people need to be careful about it, but have much higher returns. And we can be a part of that growth with each other instead of we are the workers doing our job for wages. And there are a few people with lots of money who can invest and make much, much more money. So I think those trends are creating more buy in and more ownership in the economy as it diversifies, democratizes, and grows and moves towards creating solutions for the challenges we face as a people. Well, and I think, and, and looking at this both as somebody who's been involved in technology for decades and looking from the carbon perspective, we're moving past this focus on the carbon emissions in and of themselves to this wider relationship with one another and in nature. Right. And and as you, as you break down global economies into regional circular economies, Mm. which will interact with one another, there'll still be a global economy. A lot more money stays closer to the people. Right. 
and that isn't socialism. That is just more distributed capitalism. Yeah. But on the other hand, you've got people like Elon Musk who now have more money than God. <laughs> how do we how do we rethink our relationship with one another and with nature concurrently? Hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a great question, um, and, and I I share your. Um, I share your thought around those local circular economies and how they become participatory capitalism. <clears throat> and I think that that participatory capitalism is how we move forward with less of that conflict. I mean, if as we get more inequality, we see more conflict, right? There's the whole genie index. And once we cross over, I think 0.45 or 0.5, we get more and more likely to see uh, riots and social dissolution and uh, difficulty in societies holding together. And and part of that is, yeah, concentrations in wealth. So I, I think Elon Musk is a really interesting case study in this because in one way, he's actually used his wealth in incredibly helpful ways, right? And he has said, you know, I, I want to channel this money. This money isn't about conspicuous consumption. It's about being able to use it to uh, create the solutions for the future. So with Tesla, that was about electrifying the transportation ecosystem. Yes, we need bikes. Yes, we need buses. Yes, we need um, many other solutions, not just electric cars, but it's one part of the solution. And I think he's done a great job building that. Another part is uh, the continuation of consciousness past the, you know, the end of the earth, right? So we've got maybe 500 million, maybe 2 billion years until the sun explodes, uh, or grows rapidly and and you know swallows us swallows the earth right and that is the end of all life on earth as we know it humans are the only species here that can continue to bring the light of consciousness out into the cosmos and survive that event <clears throat> and so you know space it's interesting we need it for science all of that but also i think the long-term goal of becoming a space-faring multi-planetary species is a is a good one and i know it's been criticized quite a lot and there's definitely some egos between the billionaires going on in that space race. But that money has been used um, to create solutions. And I think that's the right way to be rich. <laughs> well, gra granted, he has some he has some things I disagree with. I mean, but go ahead. Sure, everybody does. Uh, and in him particularly egregiously so. So <laughs> but sure. he's no how, angel for you think our, our current notions about compensation for creating value. And the economic order that we we know today are going to change to enable this more egalitarian outcome. Yeah, yeah. For me, it's uh, I think there are ways that we have gotten stuck in this. It's either capitalism or it's communism kind of mm -hmm. mindset, right? And yeah. a lot of those economic doctrines were written two hundred years ago plus, right? With small updates along the way. Um, and we live in such a more complicated world with so much more data and with so much, so many more dynamics going on because of technology and because of inter, uh, interacting societies. And that gives us a really good opportunity to update those models, right? And that it doesn't have to be on that continuum. We actually are doing many new types of economic experiments that show us uh, that we can we can do things differently and be successful at it. So I think, yes, we need to rethink the way that we relate to each other economically. And it doesn't mean that we have to uh, either have, you know, a giant monolithic, all-powerful government that taxes us at 75% and, yeah. you know, it tells us how our money will be spent from our hard work. Or we have this libertarian society where, 
you know, entrepreneurs, some few entrepreneurs become oil barons and steel barons, and everybody else is, you know, kind of homeless and, and you know, begging at the doors for, for a penny. Um, I, I think that's false. And like I said, I, the distributed, the, the move to more distributed and democratized economy, I think is going to empower so many more people to not only create businesses and create wealth for themselves, but to create more jobs for each other and empower those who work with them to take leadership and, uh, you know, have plenty of wealth to, to live well. And that that gets distributed to more and more people, as opposed to a very, you know, sort of barbell society where we've got a few very rich people and a few very poor people and not much in the middle. I think that expands the middle class quite a lot and gives routes to the middle class for a lot of people who are now impoverished. Well, that's a great setting for the next section of the conversation, but I'm going to take a quick commercial break. We're going to be right back. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, we're back uh, to continue the conversation with author Justin Bean, whose new book, What Could Go Right, takes an optimistic view of the climate crisis and our response to it. Uh, Justin, you deliver a very positive assessment of China's economic miracle. And we were talking a moment ago about this kind of capitalism versus communism dichotomy. We always choose to look at these questions through. The country's economic miracle, they've lifted 850 million people out of poverty in 30 years, which is astonishing, is what you described a stable and involved government. Of course, it's also totalitarian government. What forms of government do you see ascendant in the next economy? Or at least what forms of government should be aware of being ascendant and might want to adjust? Yeah. Yeah. China, China is really interesting because as you said, they've lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty and that is a big win. And that's really positive for many of us human beings. Um, at the same time, they are an authoritarian totalitarian government and, and getting more so, or they're being exposed more for, uh, that government is being exposed more for what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we're seeing it in, um, a lot of the, the protests and how they deal with them. Um, and many other ways. And I think that is a big risk as we move forward to the future, especially with surveillance technology uh, and with um, weaponization of technology that, you know, I dedicate part of this book. And this was a fun and very disturbing section of this book where I said, let's not be naive, though. Uh, this could all go terribly. Let's let's look at what could go wrong. Right. We could go into a society 
um, especially if there's more conflict globally and there is, you know, an excuse or justification for governments to take authoritarian control and use this technology for, you know, deep surveillance and um, uh, autocratic or authoritarian governments that that take over. Um, and and I think it's complicated for China, and we're seeing that today, right? Their response to the um, to the the COVID protests, right, and the the COVID lockdowns that were continuing, at first was very um, very authoritarian, right? Mm-hmm. But they they relaxed that finally after protest after protest after protest of the people, and I think they're going to see that with economic growth, especially in a distributed sense like they have, and not like a Saudi Arabia where it all comes from one place like oil, when it comes from that distributed sense, democracy democracy, um, and liberty more so starts becoming demanded. And I I think that that's something that emerges as a pattern when you study the rise of democracies. There's kind of a question of, you know, does, does democracy breed development? Or does development breed democracy? Mm-hmm. And what some of those studies have shown is that development actually breeds more democracy, as long as you're not in a country that got it all from oil or got it all from one sector. Um, and so that's that's a positive, I think, outcome or um, trend that we can look towards. Well, there are and, two technologies that you describe right. in the book that are key to that transition, not the governmental transition, but it could be part of the governmental transition. And that's AI and the Internet of Things. Internet of Things allows us to track everything AI to actually respond to all that data in real time rather than having to wait five years for somebody to do a study. Yeah. So how do you con- how do you respond to concerns that AI in particular will displace workers and also serve as a tool to misinform citizens? It absolutely will, and it already is, mm-hmm. right? When we look at the disinformation campaigns of the last few years, a lot of that is leveraging social media analytics and AI to better target people and understand how to manipulate uh, people through disinformation campaigns. And we've seen that that was targeted from Russia, China, and outside actors, as well as some inside the US. Um, and so that's a real concern. It's already happened. Um, AI has displaced some workers, but also is creating immense opportunities. And what so kind of chat GPT, I think chat GPT is a really relevant example of this, mm-hmm. right? That uh, we just saw a lot of journalists get laid off. And I think that's partially due to the fact that a lot of these companies realize that they can enter a query into chat GTP and now they can get an article. Yeah. But the, the, what they're going to find is that they get the same article all the time. Exactly. Yeah. And, 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 it, and the variety that humans put into our intellectual intercourse is what is the vital center. So do you I imagine do. people whose jobs are sort of being obsoleted by AI also being compensated for their ongoing contribution to training those AIs to be more <laughs> responsive? I, I think, yeah, it's just a, it's just a change in the way we do it. And so journalists are still needed. Mm-hmm. And part of their job is going to be understanding how to query things like chat GTP, just like Google search, right? So when Google first came out, you would just ask it some question and get, you know, some questionable answers. And then we had to learn all of us how to, how to do a Google search better to get the information we're looking for. Now there's so much information and so many responses that something like chat GTP becomes much more helpful 
And as we learn how to query it better, we can get better responses and better research and better answers that inform how we um, how we write about things or how we think about things. And it just sort of takes us to that next level, right? It's almost like a calculator where instead of spending our time on arithmetic, we can start thinking more about more conceptual mathematics and physics and how to apply that math for um, for other purposes. So I think that uh, you know there will be some some loss of jobs, and we're already seeing some of it. The classic example is the autonomous truck, you know, trucks and truck drivers losing you know those jobs, which is a great middle class job for many people. Um, <clears throat> but with these new tools that come out, the economy will shift. And I think it will shift in the direction of AIs doing things that AIs are good at, which is often repetitive tasks, huge amounts of data, sorting through it, things that we get bored with. And then human beings will be able to focus on things that human beings are good at, which is more communication and collaboration, creativity. And that will be enabled and uh, multiplied and magnified by the tools that AI gives us. Well, you just hit on a really interesting point that I've been thinking a lot about because AI could be a hectoring tyrant or it could be a very helpful coach. And it's how you modulate all of that communication, all the data flowing in from the Internet of Things saying, here's your environmental impact for real. Now you can do something rather than do something. Mm -hmm. Can do and do are two different kinds of of interaction. And so it's, there's a lot of work to be developed around just making these tools friendly. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of them will be operating in the background as they are today, right? Yeah. There's tons of AI operating in the background of Amazon and Google search and everything else that we kind of take for granted. And we just assume, you know, TikTok is going to give me the video of the cats that I love watching, right? And it's good to give somebody else a, you know, cookbook recommendation or something like that. <laughs> and I think it'll operate um, often in the background of our lives and just make our cars more efficient, make, you know, the, the activities that we do more efficient. And then it'll also come out and we'll learn how to use it more effectively to make those choices more efficiently or more sustainably moving forward. And you're right, it, it won't be or shouldn't be you must do this or you lose these, you know, social credit points. Yeah. Uh, it'll, it'll be more, hey, if you want, you know, if you want to live more sustainably, here's a better choice. You can choose that. How about this thing? Or here's an incentive idea. Oriented, incentive oriented rather than punitive. Yeah. And I think as they learn more about humanity, they'll learn that humanity acts better when it's excited about something and interested in something. And so we, we, we're more excited about the carrot than the stick. Now, people will say that, you know, you have 10 times the emotional reaction of fear, right? Because there might be a lion in the bush. Mm -hmm. And so you need to escape and your life depends on it. Then from something positive, right? You remember a lot of the negative things people say and few of the good things they say, right? Um, but when you look at when people take sustained action over time, mm -hmm. it's when they're inspired and when they're excited about something. It's almost like the fear is just a, you know, shot of adrenaline or, you know, drinking a, a shot of coffee, or eight shots of coffee versus a sustained action over time, which is how we actually get change, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's almost like we're fed this narrative that life is a Marvel movie and it all leads up to the grand battle and you win that one battle and all is good. But all really done. winning at life is like brushing your teeth, <laughs> right? You, yeah, exactly. you can't brush your teeth really well once and then have great dental health. You need to consistently brush your teeth well over time or or even if you brush your teeth mediocrely over the years, several times a day, you're going to be in much better health than if you brush it 
you know, once a week really well. Now, you know, you mentioned the Jobs Act earlier, and we have the Inflation Reduction Act, which was the largest climate investment the country's ever made. What would, in your opinion, against the backdrop of everything we've been talking about, what would a really transformative national investment look like? Hmm. I think we're seeing part of it. Infrastructure is really important, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And partially because so much of our infrastructure uh, has about a 50 to 80 year lifespan, and it was built about 70 years ago. (laughs) <laughs> and so we need to update our infrastructure um, and electrification and all of that is going to be really important, right? So I think we're doing a lot of the right thing there. Um, I think another part of it would be fueling that democratization and distribution of jobs. So the Jobs Act was really good because that helped us to create more funding for more startups and more businesses, which are what I think the economy is going to be shifting more towards. Um if there, are, if there were a way that we could uh, fund those types of policies that help small businesses and give people more of a um, safety net in order to create businesses, I think that would be a strong win for the economy. Because we've seen that people are more entrepreneurial when they're not fearing you know, destitution from starting a business. Um, and I think education is another big piece, right? The the modernization of education <clears throat> and investments in, you know, we, we had investments in internet access and computers in schools. And that was a great first step back in like the 90s and 2000s. Um, now, I think the use of um, AI assisted tools in schools will be really helpful because mm-hmm. what you're dealing with today is, you know, any teacher is basically teaching to the average or the middle of the class where half of the students are bored and then half of the students are are lost, right? And so I think with some tools in place where, um, you know, AI and gamification of education could make it a lot more fun and a lot more engaging for students um, and also more effective for them so that if it can learn the, you know, the rate at which they learn and the, the ways that they learn and feeds it back to them in a way that they're able to understand and um, retain. Or bring, it, or bring the teacher in at the right moment, which I think is really the the, the resource allocation problem in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and sort of change that model, right? Because that's where we learn how to interact with each other. And it's still, again, mm-hmm. based on this sort of authority, one person is telling the knowledge to all the students type of model. And then you get out into the real world and it's not really like that. It's it's all about initiative and collaboration and problem solving. So I think letting the eyes help AIs help us figure out these sort of memorization tasks of understanding math and reading and um, concepts and things like that. And then we move into the classroom as a workshop and you're collaborating with others every day in the in school in order to complete a project or solve a challenge. And that kind of thing is one, school would have been so much more fun if we were doing that. But two, there would be you know less of a barrier between you graduated, now you're in the real world, and it's completely different, right? And being in the workforce is a very different experience than being in a classroom. And so I think a ramp up through investments in education and maybe some guidance would help us get there. Now, we only have a couple of minutes left, and this has been a fascinating conversation, but I wanted to ask this question, and that is, uh, a lot of the discussion is around how do we get to a perfect solution? 
Hmm. Uh, for instance, there's criticism of mining for minerals for EVs, which actually represents a, a tiny fraction of what we annually mine for fossil fuels. So we would hmm. make a huge step forward where people say, well, we can't do that because it's still mining. Is yeah. that kind of maximalism, the demand that solutions be perfect or just not be pursued at all, preventing our progress? And how do we break through that logjam? Yeah, I think it is preventing our progress because, like you said, it's it's lacking in context. Mm -hmm. uh, but also, I think on the other side, we need to be really honest with ourselves about what those impacts are because mining can be unethical and it can be detrimental to the environment and batteries aren't yet fully recyclable. And those are often, I think, they're criticisms that are true and real in some in some cases, but they're being weaponized often by those who have an interest in preventing that transition. But there's immense innovation in battery recycling. I mean, you can go look up 20 startups that are working on the new chemistry. The exactly, right? There's And it's really exciting. And so these batteries have a you know 20-year lifespan, let's say. So with that 20-year lifespan, there's incredible amounts of innovation that'll be going on in the next 20 years. So I think on one side, yeah, we can't, there is no perfect solution. It's always going to be a mix of solutions and it's not going to be the, you know, single monolithic solution that we sort of had in the past with the industrial revolution, where it was steel, coal, oil, right? Instead, it's going to be a mix of EVs and hydrogen and biofuels and bikes and public transit and all these other things that give us more freedom, more options, and in a clean way. And it's going to be many, many solutions in sustainable mining, in sustainable uh, battery recycling, in you know many, many other parts of that entire value chain are being innovated. And I think therein lies the big opportunity for all of us, because all parts of the value chain and all parts of the economy are up for grabs to turn into a sustainable operation and one that's you know more cost effective, more efficient, better for consumers, better for the environment. And you can create great wealth for yourself by doing so. You know, what I took away from the book ultimately was that there's a choice to make, whether whether you choose to think of living sustainably as meaning living with less or whether you choose to see it as living better because we're not over consuming. Yep. And 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 that's that's an evolving conversation. How can our listeners follow your work and 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 talk with you about it? Yeah, I, I think you're right. That's a it's a really important part of the book that um, there's this idea that sustainable living means we live in small, dark, cold apartments, yeah. and you know we feel shame every time we go out and try to live, <laughs> and that's terrible. That no one wants to live there, and it's actually not going to work. If we moved in that direction, there would be riots in the streets. Yeah. Um, and so the only path forward in my mind is sustainable abundance. And I believe we can have it. It's within our view and there are many people working on it. And so I think the choice really is about joining that momentum. And if it's your career, if it's your education, if you're just getting started, or if it's volunteering, whatever it is, there are many routes to getting involved and, and building that sustainable abundance and having conversations with people about it because people are are understandably afraid and fearful and um, depressed about what they see in the news that there's a lot of you know bad things uh, coming our way and have already happened. And so kind of shifting that narrative to what can we do about it? Let's get excited. Let's go build something. Let's make this sustainable. Let's join this group that's already doing it, I think would be a really big mind shift that we need that would get um, people out of the sort of inaction of depression and inaction of fear and into the excited, 
uh, proactive and creative uh, momentum of, of building that, that better future. So should folks stop by justincbean.com and, 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 <laughs> and, and, and share some ideas with you? What, how, how can they help? Sure. If you want to learn more, um, justincbean.com um, has a bit about myself or reach out to me on LinkedIn or Twitter. I'm on JBino and I'm always sharing some, some thoughts and research there. So feel free to engage uh, on any of those platforms and uh, happy to hear from you. Justin, thank you very much for spending time with the Earth 911 community today. Mitch, thank you so much for having me. And thanks to all your listeners for, for tuning in. Appreciate it. We've been talking with Justin Bean, author of What Could Go Right, which is available online at Amazon and at powellbooks.com. You can learn more about Justin at uh, justincbean.com. Justin C. Bean is all one word, no space, no dashes, justincbean.com. You know, I think we need to be optimistic and that over the long run, humans' abilities to thrive in the face of evolving challenges have shown optimism is warranted. Yes, we're in a crisis, but we've been in plenty before. As Justin said, we can see this transition as a burden or an opportunity to improve. He said both that engaging in change can be fun and, I quote, very disturbing, unquote. That's not a suggestion that we minimize our worries, but that we look them straight on. The distributed democratically governed future is possible though we face aggressive alternative forms of government like China. But we've always confronted those challenges, and humanity is still here, and democracy is still holding on. We all have choices to make. That's the point. And understanding our options is the first step toward a better future. As Justin says, a lot could go right. I hope you'll take a few minutes to share this show or any of the other uh, more than 360 episodes of sustainability in your ear that we produced with your friends, family, neighbors, Talk to your coworkers and boss. You folks are the amplifiers that spread the ideas that lead to a less wasteful world. Let folks know that you, they can find sustainability in your ear on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Audible, or any of the other fine purveyors of podcast goodness that you stop by. We will really appreciate your support. I'm Mitch Ratcliffe. We'll be back with another Innovator interview soon. In the meantime, folks, take care of yourself, take care of one another, and let's all take care of this beautiful planet of ours. Have a green day. Thank you.